This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Okay, so the last talk was very zoomed out, right? Going through the first whole part of the Summa in like one slide, and the first whole part of the Summa Contra Gentiles in one slide. This one is the opposite. We're gonna be talking about God's knowledge and our knowledge, and I wanna just take some time to really look at question 14 of the first part of the Summa. This is where St. Thomas treats of God's omniscience, so God's knowledge. And I want to just go through it carefully with you. I've noticed there's people of different ranges, different experiences of Thomas here. It's a little bit slower, a little bit more carefully, actually going through the arguments. And it gives us a lot of insight, not only into God's omniscience, but he has a lot of parallels to our knowledge too. And then the second half, we'll deal with St. Thomas's treatment of our knowledge a little bit later in the Summa. Okay. So first, in the question on God's omniscience, the first article is simply, is there knowledge in God? Yes, there is. Um, and an important distinction when he's answering this, this question is the difference between a non-knowing subject and a knowing subject. So the difference between us and a bottle of water, for instance. Now, a non-knowing subject has nothing but its own form. Like a table just has the form of a table. Whereas a knowing subject, we have both our own form, our soul, our rational soul, but we can also take in the form of something else when we understand something, when we comprehend something. It's that likeness between our mind and reality that's the truth, and that, that form that corresponds in us is what gives us knowledge. That's what knowledge is, the, the capacity to have forms other than your own form in you. That's the distinction he makes at the beginning of his, this, this, this article. Does that make sense to people, that distinction? It's a little bit tricky because we haven't dealt with our knowledge yet and grasping forms in our intellect, but that's, that's the distinction he does here. And another really important principle is that form is limited by matter, right? And if form is limited by matter, what does that, what does that tell us? It says that the freer a form is from matter, then the more they approach to a kind of infinity because they're not limited, right? If matter is the limiting principle, if they're free from matter, then the form isn't limited, it approaches a type of infinity. And the thing's freedom from matter, matter is the reason we can know. Like, if you think back a little bit to the difference between a knowing subject and a non-knowing subject, right? When I know the table, right, when the form of the table, when I understand what it is to be a table, when I abstract it, it's not coming with any of the matter of the table. Like if the matter of the table came with it, it would knock me out. <laughs> no, it's just the form that I grasp, right? So a thing's freedom from matter is the reason why we can know it. Now the capacity to know is in proportion to the degree of the freedom from matter and since God is immaterial, which was a previous question, in the highest degree, absolutely no matter. Therefore, he has knowledge in the highest degree. Is that argument? I mean, there's a lot of steps here. It's really dense. But this is the first article treating of God's knowledge. And this is how he, he argues that, yes, there is knowledge in God. 
because he's completely immaterial in the highest degree, therefore he has knowledge in the highest degree. Okay. The next article is about God understanding himself. So does God understand himself? Well, yes, he does. <laughs> and the principle here is in activities which take place in the agent, the object in the agent is the activity actually taking place. That's complicated. What am I talking about? Um, if you think about some type of activity outside of yourself, like an artist doing something, right? Building, sculpting, right? That's an activity that's outside the agent. But in an activity that takes place in the agent, for example, when we're contemplating, does God know, does God understand himself? The object in the agent, right? My trying to understand whether God understands himself, that activity is actually taking place. Does that make sense? Inside, inside the agent? So it's, it's an activity that takes place in the agent. The object in the agent is the activity taking place. That's the object. Me trying to understand is the activity of my thought. Whoo! <laughs> when you dig deep in Thomas, sometimes it gets, it gets tricky. Okay, since God is pure actuality, in him intellect and what is known must be identical in every way. Because if he's pure act, if there's no potency, there can't be any change. Therefore, it's identical in every way. And in God, the knowledge likeness itself is the divine intellect itself. No distinction. Therefore, God understands himself through himself. Now, Article 3 and 4, I'm not going to go into as much detail on those because I, there's more important ones coming a bit later. But Article 3, yes, God does comprehend himself, not just understand himself. In Article 4, the act of God's intellect is his substance. Article 5 is asking, well, when we're talking about God's knowledge, does God know things other than himself, right? Or is he just thought thinking itself without any awareness of anything outside of himself. This one's important. And Thomas gives two, two arguments here on why God does know things other than himself. The first argument runs, God knows himself perfectly. And if something is known perfectly, then the power of that thing must be known as well. And power is only known perfectly if the objects to which the power extends is known, right? Well, the divine power does extend to other things because it's the first cause which produces other things. Therefore, God must know things other than himself. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, second argument that he makes is the very being of God, the first efficient cause, right, is his act of knowing. And whatever affects pre-existent God as the first cause must be in his act of knowledge. And all that is in another is therein according to the condition of that which is that in which it is. So everything in his act of knowing must be in the condition of intelligibility. So this is a different, different argument. The first one, it's kind of like cascading out, right? If you have perfect knowledge, you have to have perfect knowledge of the power. Perfect knowledge of the power means it extends to everything that it creates, and therefore God must know the things that it creates. This one is talking more about 
the condition of God's knowledge, right? Um, so it's a subtly different perspective on it. <clears throat> An important distinction in this article for both those arguments really is the difference between knowing a thing in itself and knowing a thing in another. And this is such an important distinction because you see people, a lot of the modern philosophers, when they start talking about God and whether you can know God, they, they miss this, this distinction. And they start thinking of one when it's about the other. It causes a lot of confusion. But knowing a thing in itself is when it's known through a likeness proper to the thing itself. And the example is when your eye or when you see someone standing in front of you, right? So I know what it is to be human because I see other humans, right? But knowing a thing in another, in another is when it is known through a likeness of what contains it. This is when you see something reflected in a mirror, for example. And given, given this distinction, we can say that God must see himself in himself because he sees himself through his essence. Um, things other than himself, God sees not in themselves, but in himself, because his essence contains the likeness of things other than himself. <clears throat> so, why is this distinction important? We were just talking about, what were the first two articles? Does God know himself and does God know other things, right? This distinction shows us how God knows himself and how God knows other things. It's based on this distinction. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Article six. Don't want to go into that one in too much detail. God does have proper knowledge of other things. But Article 7 is important because this is a really big distinction between how we know things and how God knows things. St. Thomas asks, is God's knowledge discursive? And he says, no. In our knowledge, when we're thinking, there's a twofold discursiveness. There's succession, right? We have one thought after another thought after another thought. And there's also causality. Like, we're thinking one thing, and that train of thought leads to another thing, like if we're following a chain of reasoning, right? Sometimes we just have crazy thoughts that are all over the place. But if we're thinking about something, if we're reasoning about something, there's a chain of causality also in our discursive knowledge. Now, you can't say succession is in God, because God sees everything in one, in himself, in pure simplicity. So he doesn't have succession discursiveness. But the discursiveness of causality can't be in God either. Because when you move from principles to conclusions, you're not considering both simultaneously the way God does. <clears throat> we, in our discursive reasoning, move from known to unknown. But that's not in God. Therefore, God doesn't have discursive knowledge the way we do. Yeah? Okay. Article 8, is God's knowledge the cause of things? Yes. <clears throat> God's knowledge stands to all created things as the artist to his products. The artist's knowledge is the cause of his products, right? If you're sculpting something, if you're making something, if you're painting something. <clears throat> and therefore, God's knowledge is the cause of his products. God causes things through his intellect. 
because his existence is his act of knowing. God knows himself through himself, remember. Therefore, God's knowledge must be the cause of things when regarded in conjunction with his will. Um, the special name for this unique type of knowledge in God is the knowledge of approbation, God's knowledge as the cause of things. The next three articles, God does know evil, he knows singular things, and he knows infinite things. But I don't want to go into details on those either because there's a lot more to cover. <laughs> okay, article 13, this one's big. Does God have knowledge of contingent future events? Yes, he does. God knows our works, and our works are contingent future events because of free will. <laughs> Therefore, God knows contingent future events. Pretty simple, simple argument. I mean, this is an argument he just lays out right in the said contra, boom. He doesn't even take the whole body of the article to do it. But it's really, really important because this leads to a lot of people's confusion with how do we have free will if God knows everything, if he knows what I'm going to do, then how am I actually free, right? So I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this. And we skipped over Article 9 because it wasn't important at the time, but it is important here. Because Article 9, the question is, does God have knowledge of things that are not? And it's yes, he does. <clears throat> because there's a difference between a knowledge of intelligence, which means you can know things that will never be, versus a knowledge of seeing, which is of things that will be. Because there's two ways to con consider contingent, contingent events. In itself, right, as already in the state of actuality, <clears throat> like whether or not I'm going to do something, it's contingent, but when it actually happens, it was still a contingent event because I made this contingent choice, but you can know it because now it's actual, right? But another way you can know contingent events is through their cause. And that's how so much of our science works nowadays, right? We know so much about events that we can predict how things are gonna work. This is knowing contingent events through their causes. Contingent events are known infallibly by God because they're the objects of the divine gaze in their presence to him. Well, on the other hand, they are future contingent events in relation to their proximate causes. What does this mean? This is looking at it from two different perspectives here is what, what St. Thomas is doing. From God's perspective, who is present at every point in time, right? Contingent events are infallibly known by him because they're the object of his gaze outside of time. <clears throat> but on the other hand, future contingent events, they're still future to our perspective, right? Because we don't have that gaze of all time at the same time. So from our perspective, it's a future contingent event. From God's perspective, it's a contingent event but in this first sense, right? It's in the state of actuality for him, even though it's future contingent for us. <laughs> Good? Okay, the next three articles here, God knows propositions, yes, his knowledge is unchanging, and his knowledge is speculative. But I wanna dig a little bit deeper on this one and bring in uh, St. Thomas's commentary on Aristotle's On Interpretation, which is a logical work by Aristotle. 
But I think this is one of the clearest points where he tries to solve this issue of, if God knows everything, then how am I free? And two very clear objections that you even hear today. It seems that everything must happen the way it does because God knows it and his knowledge can't be mistaken, so what he knows must necessarily happen, right? And God wills it and his will can't be ineffective, so everything he wills must necessarily happen. So how do we have freedom? This is the place where it's clearest to me, his answer. St. Thomas replies, a mind contained within time, like all of us when we're thinking about it, we relate differently to the knowing of what happens in time than a mind altogether outside of time like God. And God's knowing is altogether outside of time. So God's will is to be thought of as existing outside the realm of existence, of everything that exists. And as a cause from which pours forth everything that exists in all its variant forms. That's how there can be free contingent events that God can know, but that doesn't stop them from being freely contingent. It's a difference in perspective. Good? <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about our knowledge now. Let's shift gears where we at. Okay. God, uh, St. Thomas treats our knowledge in questions 84 through 88 of the first part of the Summa. And his structure of it is how do we know material things, how do we know ourselves, and how do we know immaterial things. That's the main division he makes when he's treating of our knowledge and how we come to understand things. Knowing material things is the most complicated, that's why it's split into three different questions. He asks, what are the means by which we know material things, the mode and the order by which we come to know material things, and what we know about material things. Since we're this is five questions as opposed to just one. We're going to zoom out a little bit here, not go into as much detail, but question 84, the means by which we know material things. We know material things by means of the intellect. Haha, <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> Through the bodily senses, though, that's key. We don't know things like Plato postulated from immaterial forms, right, being impressed on us that we're approaching. St. Thomas says, no, we are material beings. We know things through our bodily senses by means of the intellect. He says the soul is like a tablet on which nothing is written, but it is not written on by the separate forms proposed by Plato. It's written on by the forms that are abstracted from the things we know in the world. So intelligible species, that's what's derived from sensible things, are required for us to gain knowledge, but phantasms are required as a means. So the intelligible form of a table, for instance, gets abstracted into a phantasm in my mind where then I can understand it. And the judgment of intellect is hindered by suspension of the senses. If we don't have any senses, then we can't understand things. We can't know things. Senses are required for us in our bodily state to know things. Now the mode and order in which we know material things he mentioned in the last one, right, we understand material things by abstraction from phantasms, which results in an intelligible species by which our intellect understands. And in us, knowledge of the individual is prior to knowledge of the universal, so I have to experience a table before I can understand what it means to be a table, right? I have to sense it, I have to see it, I have to experience the individual before I can understand the universal. But in the intellect, 
knowledge of the more common is prior to the less common. So in our senses, the individual comes first, but in our understanding, we understand the universal before we can particularize it. Okay. Although we can know many things, understanding is limited to sequential intelligible species for us. That's our focus, right? We can't focus on multiple things at the same time. Like people are really good at multitasking and juggling things, but when you're aware of your focus, we can only understand one sequential intelligible species at a time. And we understand it by composition and division. <clears throat> now this is, this is a bold claim of his, but when you're understanding what he's talking about with intellect, and what that fully means, he says there can't be falsehood in the intellect, but it may be accidentally deceived. So we can be deceived, it can be accidental, but our intellect, an immaterial intellect, abstracting truth, it can't be a falsehood. Because a falsehood is something that doesn't exist, you know? So one person can understand the same thing better than another person, and he says we understand the divisible before the indivisible. The last thing about material things and how we know material things, namely what we know of material things. We know the universal by reason and the singular by sense, of course, that makes sense. And we can't know the infinite the way God can. Remember when we were doing God's knowledge in question 14, yes, God does know the infinite, but we can't know the infinite. And he makes a distinction between three different types of infinite, actually. Actually, habitually, and potentially. We can't know the actual infinite, and we can't know the habitually infinite, but we can know the potentially infinite. Like, that's what our infinity is in mathematics, right? Um, we understand if we continually add it could go on forever, that's understanding it in a potential sense, but not in an actual sense, understanding the infinite. Um, <clears throat> he says we can know contingent things insofar as they can't contain necessity. That's how we get our laws of physics, for instance. Those are contingent events. <clears throat> the more precise, the more accurate our laws of physics are, the better we can predict them because the more accurately we see the necessity so we can know contingent events. And same thing with future things, insofar as we know universal causes. Okay, let's jump to ourselves. Now this does mirror a little bit about God knowing himself. If you remember that article that we covered right at the beginning, the second article of question 14? It's a little bit similar. St. <clears throat> Thomas says, how do we know ourselves? We know our intellect by its own act both in the individual act when we perceive coming to understand a thing and in the universal act when we consider the nature of the human mind and the intellectual act itself. So everybody has the experience of being in some class where you suddenly the light bulb goes off and you're like, bam, ah, I get it. It makes sense now. So that's one way we can know our intellect and be aware of our intellect. But the other way, the second way here is when we're considering the nature of the human mind. 
like we're doing right now going through this article in St. Thomas, right? We're thinking about the human mind, how the intellectual act works, how we operate. That's another way we can know our intellect. But we can also know the habits of our souls by our activities and our actions, our acts. What we do gives us insight into the habits inherent in our souls. And same thing with the will. We're aware that we have a will because willing is an intelligible inclination and thus we know the acts of our will. Immaterial things. Question 88, how do we know immaterial things though? We can't understand separate immaterial things in themselves, nor can we understand immaterial things perfectly through material things. This harkens back to the first presentation, right? God is immaterial. We only get this indistinct, fuzzy, as if we're stammering, trying to talk about what he is. Same type of thing here when we're talking about immaterial things. We can't understand immaterial things perfectly through material things. So we know God through creatures, according to right, the Apostle Paul. Invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. This was the first of the ways that we talked about this morning, right, by causality. And those, those other three. Okay, now let's, now let's jump, jump out of the Summa into St. Thomas's commentary on the Gospel of John. Because we talked about our knowledge of material things, we talked about our knowledge of ourselves, we talked about our knowledge of immaterial things, and now I want to talk a little bit about our knowledge of God. We did a little bit of this with the earlier presentation. That's what it was all about, knowing the unknown God, right? But I want this to kind of be a capstone of the first presentation and this presentation, our knowledge of God, trying to bring them together a little bit. Of course, there's the whole our knowledge, God's knowledge, then we have Christ, who is true God and true man, and all the conflicts that that entails, but <laughs> that's Father Dominic, so save all those questions for him for the last talk, because that's what he's dealing with. <laughs> I just want to talk about our knowledge of God a little bit more. Um, we have to understand that there's a threefold way of seeing God. Now, this was what I was referencing earlier, right? Where St. Thomas says this threefold way of seeing God, but oh, there's this fourth I forgot to mention. And he didn't go back and say four, he just left it as three. And I think this is kind of what he was talking about. And I think this maybe is where his experience on the Feast of St. Nicholas might have felt. But St. Thomas says, this is all one quote. I've broken it up so it's a little bit easier to process, but it's just a straight quote from Lecture 11 in his commentary on the Gospel of John. We have to understand three threefold ways of seeing God. First, by means of a creature substituted for God and offered to our bodily eye. And he says, this is how Abraham saw God when the three men appeared to him and he adored one of them. Um, so many stories of angels appearing in the Old Testament, Jacob wrestling with God, those type of things, right? By means of a creature substituted for God offered to our bodily eye. In a way, this is kind of connected to the way of causality, right? We see some good in creatures, therefore it points to God, similar here. The second is by way of an imaginary representation. This is the prophet Isaiah, <clears throat> all the visions he saw, God sitting on a throne. Um, Revelation, the apocalypse, by way of an imaginary representation in a vision or some kind of mystical experience. That's one, another way to see God. And then he says, finally, we may see God by an intelligible form 
abstracted from sensible realities. He says, this is the case for those who, contemplating the greatness of creatures, grasp in the understanding the greatness of the creator. Um, but then he has this fourth here. He says, oh, but there seems to be another way too. Through a certain light infused by God into the mind during contemplation. And this is how Jacob saw God face to face. Kind of falls outside the structure of the other three. It's kind of unique. That's why I don't think he numbers it with the other three. And I think this is where St. Thomas's experience would, would fall. Okay. Now he says, in matters of the divine essence, when we're talking about our knowledge of God, we have to pay attention to three things. First, the divine essence will never be seen by the bodily eye, nor perceived by the senses or imagination because we can only perceive sensible things through the senses and God is not a body. We had the question earlier this morning in the previous lecture with Father Dominic about, it seems a little bit Cartesian, like if we can't see God with our body, we need to leave our body in order to see God. <clears throat> There's a really neat little, <laughs> little qualification here because we always think about leaving the body as death. St. Thomas says death or rapture. So the, listen to all the saints, different saints have these stories of rapture. He says that is equivalent to death. Our capacity to be raptured up into the love of God separates us from our body and our senses sufficiently that we can see him without the body getting in the way, even during this life, before we've died. I thought that was really interesting. Um, so as long as the human intellect is linked to the body, it can't see God for it's way down by the corruptible flesh, right? And it can't achieve the summit of contemplation. And that no created intellect, no matter how fully separated from the body as we may imagine, whether by death or rapture, can totally understand the divine essence by seeing it. So never will we completely, totally comprehend God. Not even in heaven, not even the beatific vision. We see him face to face as he is, but it's not a comprehensive vision. Only God himself totally comprehends himself. <clears throat> so, conclusion. God alone comprehends himself because his power in the act of knowing is as vast as his existence in the act of being. And so, the very first quote I had in my last one, right, was the quote from St. John on my first slide, seems to be a contradiction in scripture. St. Thomas says, here's... After all of this, here's really how we have to understand St. John's expression, no one has ever seen God. And it's in this threefold way. No one, which is to say no mortal has ever seen God, which is to say the divine essence through bodily or imaginative vision. And no one in this mortal life has seen the divine essence itself. And no one, man or angel, has seen God with comprehensive vision because only God himself sees himself that way. And that's it. Thank you. Any questions? Okay, yeah. Um, okay, so I won't ask anything about Jesus because I know he's not. But so, with, I think it was the previous slide talking about um, the corruptibility of, yeah, corruptible flesh. Yeah. How does that apply to the Blessed Mother since she's uh -huh. like, doesn't have original sense, her flesh isn't corruptible. So right. would she be able to have that bodily vision? Or, 
Wow, that's really interesting because, <clears throat> yes, she doesn't have original sin. She was preserved from it by the, the grace that was from Christ's cross, sacrifice given to her outside of time in a sense. But at the same time, she doesn't have a resurrected body the way Christ had his resurrected body after, you know, Holy Saturday. So there is, there is something different going on there. And I think in, in the way I understand this, the way we get our resurrected bodies back, right now on earth, our souls are kind of dependent on our bodies and we can feel our bodies getting in the way of our soul and the things we want to do because we're lazy, lazy and our bodies lose strength and stuff. That flips with our resurrected body. So right now, our soul is dependent on our body, but with the resurrected body, our body is dependent on our soul. And one of the qualities of our resurrected body is that we have complete control over our body because our soul perfectly lines up with it, right? So it doesn't get in the way of our contemplation with our resurrected body. It kind of flips the priority of soul and body and how they interact. Well, the Blessed Mother didn't have that yet. She still had this body, even though she didn't have original sin. She was still living in a fallen world. That's a really interesting question. I, I would say that for the Blessed Mother, rapture would have been a lot simpler and easy on-ramp for her because of the lack of original sin and not having that. But I don't think she was experiencing God the way we all will with our resurrected bodies at the end of time, just because of the difference in how the bodies and souls interact here versus the resurrected body. Uh, I had a quick clarification uh, type question. Um, so on knowing material things. Okay. So the example you gave was table. Okay, yeah, tables right in front of me. <laughs> but uh, table, is, you know, there's a distinction between substance and artifacts. Right. And so when it comes to cognizing artifacts, there's no substantial form. Yeah. And so the example, it seems like it's hard to, you, you know, they're just accidental forms that come to your senses. So how would you form a concept when it comes to artifacts? Um, that's a really good question. I, how do you form concepts of artifacts? In your mind? Or, yeah, some, like how do you colonize, like a substantial form, a, 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 a substance you could, you would see the particular human beings, the quiddity, humanity, the activism, renders it intelligible for you. But when it comes to artifacts, it's, um, not so clear uh, what the mechanism is right. psychologically. That is, that is really interesting. When, when we come to understand things, material things, through the composition and division, right? That's the way our mind works. And with artifacts, it's more of a, it seems more like it's a, a community, a culture thing. Yeah. So you, you know, just have to appeal to the person I don't like you would have to look at it in terms of the functional view, like look how this person made this and why what its purpose 
Yeah, and the intelligibility they yeah. imbued in it when they were making it as an artifact. Yeah, I think you would. Yeah, that makes sense. I should have used living beings as my example. That makes a lot of Aristotelian and knowledge much more comprehensible. Um, yeah, it's, it's tricky because you think about nowadays and how much neuroscience we have and all the psychology, people are studying psychology, you know all these different things about the mind and how we come to know things. And then we have this other natural philosophy that comes to us from Aristotle and it's looking at things from such a completely different perspective outside of our scientific revolution, you know. And what the ancients were focused on so much is formal and final cause and understanding things in term of form and cause and final cause and the purpose of things, right? Whereas since the scientific revolution, everybody's goal is to understand things in terms of material cause and efficient cause so we can predict the future and rein in the forces of nature and use them to make life easier, right? So our focus is on two completely different things and there is a way to unite these because there are four separate causes. It's just our focus is in different areas. I, it's so funny. We were talking at lunch about science fiction, how lame most science fiction is. But there was one really good science fiction story I read at one point in my life. Um, have, have any of you ever seen the movie Arrival? Arrival is pretty cool. Now, it's based on this collection of short stories. And the movie changes some things and smudges it so the science isn't consistent. The book and the short stories are very consistent with their current science. And there's one short story in there which is really neat because it takes an actual physical optics, physics question, namely when light goes through water and the water, because of the different density of the material, bends the light, so it bends and you get this shift in the view when you're looking at something through the water, right? The bending of the light. And in the short stories, like, you know, we're so accustomed to explaining things in terms of material cause that when we look at that situation with today's mindset, we're like, well, yeah, because the light is going through rare matter and then it hits denser matter, so it slows down and it bends the light and it ends up here, right? But he said you can look at the exact same physical thing in terms of final cause and it explains it away if you're trying to figure out, here's the light, and you want to find the shortest time to get to this point, what's the shortest distance to get to this point, it would be that path. So you can look at modern science in terms of final cause, but nobody does it. But I think, anyway, I'm getting way off. <laughs> I didn't want to go into so much of that because it's the Mystic Institute, but and neuroscience is amazing too. We're talking about abstracting these forms, right? And you can look at so many people like say, okay, you got all the light atoms, photons hit the retina, it transfers, you can follow it all the way through to the brain when it gets mapped on the brain. But then what happens, you know? <laughs> is there a little man in the brain looking at the screen on your brain to see what you like? No, this type gives you a deeper explanation but there is something going on in the contemporary neuroscience, too. It's crazy. Like, some people who get bullet through their brain, it goes right to that point, their optic nerve, they suddenly have a black hole at everything they look at because that little part of their brain doesn't receive the photon receptors anymore, and there's just a little black hole where they're looking. Crazy things like that. I don't know. I'm really rambling. <laughs> Question. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to 
So indulge me to put an analogy into the conversation here. So if the mind is a piano with strings on it, when Aquinas is talking about the knowing subject having both its own form and the form of something else, okay. is he talking about this you can play chords on the strings that are already there, and those are forms that are being imprinted onto the strings, but the strings are already there? Or is there this sense in which, oh, new strings are actually acquired? What a cool analogy. <laughs> I've never heard that before. But I, my inclination is to really like that analogy. Because we have our form of rational soul, right? And when we know things, we're abstracting the intelligible form from things, from the phantasm in our imagination. And it resonates in our soul, that knowledge. And it doesn't, it's not adding new things. Um, Aristotle says, in a sense, our soul is all forms, you know, because and the piano, in a sense, is all notes because it has the potency. To, I don't know. That's a cool analogy. I I would incline towards yes, knowing things is playing notes as opposed to adding more strings to the piano. Okay. Yeah. We're gonna try and uh, tease the analogy and show where maybe it doesn't work so well, at least from a, <laughs> at least from a linguistic standpoint. So far as that, like, we, with our capacity for language. It's not something that's, there's something, there's got to be something innate to it, but if we just have a very unethical scenario of a child who does not, is not given language, they're not going to develop language on their own. And mm -hmm. theoretically, it could be redeveloped again over many generations or something, but it is something that we have to receive in order to even exercise such a capability. Like, it has to be imprinted upon us. It's like the strings, like, yeah, there's some strings that are being played in this piano, yeah. But other strings have to be laid down for us in order for us to be able to even do it. Yeah, both and. I mean, yeah, it's a cool analogy, but I don't know how far we can 